Aloha. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us on The Conversation. It is Monday, December 11th, day six of the end of the year membership drive. We are just coming off of a series of marathon events that drew thousands of visitors and residents to Waikiki. We talk with Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association head Mufi Hanneman about the industry outlook as we look forward to a new year. We pay tribute to the first Native Hawaiian scientist to oversee the Hawaiian Volcano uh, Observatory on the Big Island. We'll hear how he navigated the intersection of science and culture. And we Hanahoa story about compassionate housing, designing for healing and survival. Out of a need comes innovation to help house fire victims, a design to consider. Thousands of people uh, flocked to Waikiki this weekend for the Honolulu Marathon and the Merry Mile. You know, just before that launched, we had the annual Waikiki Safety Conference. It was put on by a coalition of groups from the Hawaii Tourism Authority to the Waikiki Improvement Association. It highlights everything from warnings about break-ins at popular visitor sites uh, by Jessica Lani Rich of the Visitor Aloha Society to alerts from the Honolulu Police. We talked to Mufi Hanneman, former Honolulu mayor and council member, who is now with the Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association. Part of this is just friendly reminders because we gather stakeholders from our organizations and the public and of course the Waikiki Neighborhood Board and Residential Community is a big part of it because they're a third of the folks that we try to look after, guests, our workers, and of course our residents. So some of them are healthy reminders that Jessica uh, puts out there in several languages and others are looking for legislation that we can sort of ask the legislature or the county council wherever it's the appropriate agent to address. So one of that is the habitual assault uh, that occurs by many individuals, or some individuals, I should say, but, you know, they're let off scot-free. <laughs> a week mm-hmm. later, you see them back out on the street. So we need to put some teeth into that. And uh, so this next legislative session, we're going to press for uh, stricter legislation. Another that we were talking about with putting more lockers on the beach and then making sure that they're cared for properly, they're maintained, so that we are able to control the amount of theft that occurs on the beach when people go into the waters or uh, they get careless. You know, you got folks that are swooping out and watching their every move. So those are very important. In fact, this conference came about when I was uh, on the city council. Can you believe that? Many years wow. ago when uh, the Japanese Consul General, speaking of Japan, made a very uncharacteristic statement and said that we didn't stop the high-profile crimes that we were having back then, back in the 90s. He will uh, urge his government not to send any visitors here. So that woke all of us up and uh, started it back then. And then when I became mayor, we continued it. And then, of course, when I went to this job at Hawaii Lodging Tourism Association, we've continued it. It's very, very important. We have to continue to put the word out that we are a safe place. That's one of our competitive advantages. If we lose that, then we just become another paradise that's fraught with problems and crime and and all that bad stuff that we don't want to see. And it's not just Waikiki, because I know, you know, the regulars at Ala Moana usually get the word out, hey, there are people that are watching, and you go swimming there at Ala Moana, and they run off with your stuff. So just good. we've got to be mindful uh, and, and careful not to leave your possessions on the beach like that. You're right. Yeah, it's all the tourism hotspots, not just Ala Moana. It's also out in the Kualino, Waianae area. It's on the North Shore. And throughout the state of Hawaii, the beauty of HLT is we're a statewide organization. So Maui, a couple of years, also did a similar public safety type conference. You know, it's just constant reminders, 
bringing the law enforcement people together, government knowing that we want to be collaborative partners, we want to be their eyes and ears, we want to be their advocates, and uh, knowing that we got their back. And then, of course, we're uh, buoyed by the fact that uh, a highly visible presence by our public safety first responders is very important. You know, visibility is a great deterrent to crime. When visitors know where they can go when they need help and the bad guys who are doing all these nasty stuff know that the police are watching and that they've got, you know, like the ambassador group there in, in Waikiki that uh, made up of people that are work with the Waikiki Business Improvement District and volunteers and retired police officers and then our own security personnel at the various properties. When we're all collaborating and working together, very, very difficult for crime to get a major foothold. We want to continue to tap down on the crime statistics. And, you know, you brought up Maui and, uh, you know, talking with the officials recently, it is still stunning to think that we have thousands of our residents still in the some 30 hotels over there. They're really working to try and get the owners of short-term rentals to convert to long-term rentals just to help with the housing crunch. But how are you looking at that situation? Well, it's very concerning. You know, we have an obligation to make sure we take care of our workers that need housing. Uh, but we also know they're restless. They want to get out of the hotels. They want to go into a more permanent home type of situation, uh, have a garage, be able to keep their pet, and, and basically get back to some form of normalcy. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is that we have tons of uh, FEMA workers, Red Cross workers that we have to house at our hotels. So uh, as long as uh, the majority of them are there, we really can't have major movement in terms of attracting tourists back to be able to come and stay at the hotels. But we want to be careful about that because we made an obligation to keep them there. So we are working very closely with government. We're urging and seeing some results of late from Governor Green and Mayor Bisson of providing incentives, uh, whatever they need to do to get short-term rental owners to understand that they've got to open up that housing supply and inventory to allow local people reside there and not be so quick to look at the fast buck that they can make uh, from people that will come here and pay whatever. Uh, You know, it hurts our affordable housing inventory, and at this particular time, it's a crunch. So very, very happy that they're considering all aspects from incentives to subsidies, uh, and even, uh, as Governor Green has called, the nuclear option, where they may have to just go in and you know, condemn it for a while, and maybe it's going to be a short-term period where they'll say, hey, for the next six, seven, eight months, you know, you folks will need to rent to local residents. And I really believe people there on Maui, local residents in general, will get behind it. Mayor Blanchotti, to his credit, has really tightened down on the short-term rental market in residential neighborhoods, and that's a good thing. It needs to be done throughout the state. I've always said from the hotel lodging side is, you know, come and compete with us in resort areas. I don't have a problem with that. Uh, my problem is when they go into the residential neighborhoods, where they make it difficult for many of our coworkers to be able to live affordably. And of course, when you're an absentee owner, you don't obey the rules. You don't know when to put your garbage out, the noise or what have you. And that's difficult, especially when we hit some very turbulent times in tourism like we did during the pandemic. A lot of the folks that were disobeying the rules and regs and not listening to all the public health safety tips were folks that were staying at short-term rentals. I know that people that live in these neighborhoods would love nothing better than to see local residents renting long-term 
uh, as opposed to visitors from afar that come and go, and you never know who's going to be your neighbor from week to week. Well, you know, um, the other development that has happened is uh, the announcement about Hawaiian Air and Alaska. Uh, any thoughts about that? I think it's a good thing. I really do. I, uh, you know, I always believe that uh, when you have an opportunity to strengthen an airline, and uh, you know, it's no secret, Hawaiian Airlines has gone through some challenges. And what's good about this, they're talking about keeping the brand, which I think is very important. Hawaiian Airlines is a brand name, and they've also made a commitment to keep the union employees employed. I like that. So, you know, uh, there may be some people that unfortunately may uh, lose their jobs it always happens in this situation hopefully it'll be done very sensitively i note that it's going to be a 12 to 18 month period before uh the t's are crossed the i's are dotted and you know hopefully uh we'll be able to transition transition some of those folks either into uh the new alaska hawaiian airline company or uh be able to find work in, in other areas we do have a labor shortage that we're experiencing, which is another challenge in opening up uh, tourism as quickly as we want to. So there's still a lot to to do, but I think on balance, we'll benefit from it. I think you'll see inter-island service continue. Also, uh, you'll see our base market, which is the West Coast. I think it will be enhanced because that's where Alaska's strength is. Hawaiian has a major a priority in that area, and that's what's keeping us propped up in these difficult times. Is what's coming in from the West Coast, so that that'll help us. Besides the international markets, and hopefully markets like American Samoa will be enhanced as a result of uh, this new uh, partnership uh, between uh, Alaska and Hawaiian Airlines, where uh, Alaska Airlines is taking the lead. So, on balance, T's have to be crossed, I's have to be dotted, but so far. They're saying all the right things. I've had many discussions with the folks in charge at Hawaiian, as well as Alaska. I like what I hear. Job of uh, government and uh, hospitality advocates is make sure we keep their feet to the fire. But I don't see anything that causes me concern uh, at this point that this is uh, going to be bad for the people of Hawaii. I think on balance, it'll be a good thing. That was Mufi Hanneman, president and CEO of the Hawaii Lodging and Tourism Association. He was talking about the recent news of the proposed sale of Hawaiian Airlines to Alaska Airlines, as well as the recent safety conference that was held in Waikiki last week. Support for The Conversation comes from Nohea Gallery at Kahala Mall, featuring handcrafted jewelry, art, local woodwork, and gifts for entertaining from Hawaii artists. NoheaGallery.com Just as members in the Jewish community come together to celebrate Hanukkah, a threat to a local temple is being investigated. That is the subject of our Reality Check today. Editor Kim Gamble joins us this morning. Hi, Catherine. And, uh, you know, you folks got a copy of this threatening email. Yes, we did. We did. It's not clear who it's from, you know. Um, 
and um, it's it's basically very brief, and it just ha- includes the threat and claims that explosives were placed in quote every synagogue from Hawaii is what they said, um, and that they were well hidden. After, you know, and then it had some you know rhetoric, anti-Semitic rhetoric, and um, after that. The Honolulu police did actually investigate this, and they went to a few of the temples, and so they made sure that there were no explosives in there. So it appears to have been a false threat in that sense. Yeah, I mean, it's very scary because, you know, usually we don't see this type of, um, you know, rhetoric and in, 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 in the incidents like we've been seeing on the mainland, uh, but it is uh, very distressing. It is. It is. And, you know, it is happening a lot on the mainland, of course. And we should mention, you know, there's also been anti-Muslim and anti-Arabic rhetoric on the mainland as well. But it is distressing. Um, That's what, you know, I spoke to somebody from the temple, um, Emmanuel, which was one of the main threat getters. And um, she was saying, you know, this was the first time that they've received a concrete threat like this um, since the war between Israel and Hamas started. So it was quite disconcerting. Yes, and then there was also reports of uh, anti-Semitic graffiti around town. Yeah, yeah. Um, Our reporter, Alan Q, was actually driving by Leonard's Bakery, um, you know, on Kapuhulu, and um, he actually saw that there had been spray-painted a swastika and a Star of David. They were removing that. But in addition to that, there were reports of anti-Semitic graffiti on H1 near um, the exit one and also in um, Kaimuki. Now, other than the Leonard's Bakery, um, we haven't seen that graffiti ourselves, though a couple people sent some pictures. Yes, uh, I got uh, some over the weekend as well, flagging, you know, that that they're seeing this now. So uh, obviously a concern as, you know, uh, the death toll, you know, is, is just so high over there uh, as Israel, uh, you know, count, uh, counters the attack from Hamas. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Tensions are high. We should also note, you know, um, sadly, that um, it's Hanukkah right now. Um, Jews are celebrating Hanukkah. And so I think that it's also a high-profile time. And then you did also check with another temple as well, and, and there was nothing amiss there. That's right, Shabbat, um, mm-hmm. in Waikiki. Um, and they also had, they also received the email, mm. and um, the police came and checked out the temple and also found nothing, thank goodness. And I will say that, you know, um, Jewish leaders are saying that they're carrying on as normal. You know, they're hoping that this was rhetoric and not a concrete threat since nothing was found and that they are continuing with their celebrations, particularly as it is. Hanukkah. Yeah, we just got to be on guard. But thank you so much, Kim. Oh, thanks, Catherine. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Kim Gamble is Civil Beat's managing editor. You can uh, read her stories online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from Beach Tree Restaurant, located oceanfront at Four Seasons Resort, Hualalai, serving lunch and dinner. Chef Giuliano features fresh seafood and daily handcrafted pastas and pizzas with nightly live acoustic entertainment.
A year ago this week, a 16-day Mauna Loa eruption on the Big Island came to an end. The scientists at the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory were able to make that call with confidence, thanks to research by geophysicist Jim Kawahikawa, who we lost this past October. Kawahikawa was a Kamehameha Schools alum and served as the observatory scientist in charge from 2004 to 2015. He was the first Native Hawaiian to hold that position at the 100-year facility. Today, Ken Hahn is the head of the observatory. He talked with the Conversations with Russell Subiono about the impact Kawahikawa had on their work. Jim was a very interesting person, like all we are. You know, he had a very analytical side and a side that was also tied to his upbringing and his roots which I guess isn't that abnormal, but it's, you know, <laughs> and he spent a good part of his career trying to reconcile those two pieces of himself and bring them together into something that was more fully functional. And I think it was his thinking about, you know, how does my scientific brain, where I'm very analytical and trying to prove things, you know, work with my Hawaiian brain, where I have a set of beliefs about how you should treat the land, how you should address yourself with other people, what kind of respect order. And I'm not talking about religious beliefs even, but just about behavioral beliefs and philosophical approaches to life, right? And so that's not, that's, I think, something all scientists struggle with is philosophically, what do we believe versus how do we go about problem solving in the real world? Jim really brought a lot of Native Hawaiian thinking, you know, and it's not as if we don't approach with purpose, you know, because we always have a purpose. Scientists always have a purpose, but oftentimes it's the purpose that I'm really interested in this, right? We're driven by self-interest and we have to. And so Jim really was a proponent of developing that sense of purpose for science, not just for its own sake, but for, you know, how it fits into this unique community. And as you know, Hawaii has many, many different communities and native Hawaiians stand out and kind of lead the way, but there's also many other disparate communities that are all woven together into our social fabric. I think that's what fascinated me about Jim, the idea that he was the first native Hawaiian scientist in charge at a place called the Hawaiian Volcano Observatory. And you alluded to it, or you talked about it already, that he was always exploring this intersection between science and culture. Was there anything that he brought into the observatory in terms of like policy or, or ways to approach work at the volcano? Yeah, and I, I wouldn't say they're policies. They're more like philosophies, I think, is a good way to, to kind of ingrain a philosophy of how we deal with this. And I think because of that, and, you know, both Jim and I worked in Kalapana, which was a devastating experience in some ways, but also quite a an eye-opening experience in others. It certainly changed my view of science, and I know it changed Jim's as well, when you actually see you know, the thing that we would study out in the park, you know, it's very separated from people. And then when you see it come in and intersect with people's lives and homes and property and places, particularly places, you know, Kalapana, in my mind, was one of the last true authentic Hawaiian communities. There's still a couple left, but there aren't very many of those anymore. So these families were all there and there's a very special place. And to see it changed was a really significant thing. So I think what Jim tried to do is draw the scientists into more meaningful conversations with the Native Hawaiian community, too, as to how we can go forward and approach our science in a way 
that feels more authentic to the people who grew up here. How involved or what kind of things did Jim do to, you know, either either mentor or help provide a way for the next generation of, of scientists or volcanologists or, or geophysicists? Well, Jim was always interested in that. So one of the things he did early on was work with Napuanoyao and David Singh, who ran that program. So he was very successful working there. And now our, you know, we do have one of our younger folks who's risen up high is in charge of our field engineering tech group. And he's brilliant, you know. And he came to Napuanoyao. He clicked with the whole idea in seventh grade. And he said, I want to study volcanoes. But now he's one of the best things that's ever happened to the Volcano Observatory. So it is something that we've got to do a better job of reaching out to kids. And it'll take, you know, it's a 10-year, 15-year project to grow somebody into one of these positions, right? It's not something that happens overnight. When you worked with him or, or any time that you interacted with him, how did his passion for the volcano, for Hawaii, how did that come through? Oh, yeah. Jim was not only curious and interested, but he was passionate and he was passionate about doing things right. And <laughs> he was a geophysicist, so he's much more quantitative. I'm a geologist, right? So Jim really sees the world or saw the world through a lot of equations, too, right? He could actually visualize things and see how it fit on whatever kind of equation. I was more like looking at things and thinking about overall processes, you know, kind of more like imagination kind of things, you know. So sometimes he would get a little frustrated with me because he was very demanding about the precision that you bring to the work and that it had to be precise. And it's the same thing that he brought with, you know, dealing with Native Hawaiian thought processes and philosophies that, that it be done right, right? It's not halfway right. It's all the way right, you know. And so everything Jim did, he brought that intensity to it you know he had a love for exploring things but also this intensity that it be done right do you have any good jim kawahikawa stories oh well yeah i mean he (laughs) (laughs) he and i we would for about 20 years we would go to movies and we would go to these things action movies boys movies we Mm -hmm. called them that's what our wives called them (laughs) and we would basically sit and eat lunch for two hours and talk geology for two hours or something and and then we'd go watch a boys movie (laughs) 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 he loved action movies especially ones where nobody said anything (laughs) the less dialogue the better (laughs) thanks so much for your time ken really appreciate it yeah actually if you want the last bit of what Jim, Jim worked very close, even though like during the Mauna Loa eruption, he was very close in our you know, decision-making going out to warn the community. But then during the eruption, Jim stepped in with our messaging, our daily messaging, because Jim by that time was having a really hard time hearing people and stuff, so he couldn't work in the emergency operations center or anything. But he was very big on, again, looking up details And I would ask him a question because one of the things that we were worried about during Mauna Loa is there's the high effusion rate start to these eruptions, but some of those northeast rift zone eruptions switch over to a low effusion rate eruption that can go on for weeks or months or even, you know, up to a year or something like that. So during the eruption, he researched all the things that he could find. And he was a magician finding stuff in the old newspaper articles and stuff. He would sort through everything, all the sources of data 
And what he came up with is that once the Mauna Loa eruption was over and lava had quit coming out of the vent, they never restart, at least in the last 200 years and 34 observations now. And so that really gave me confidence. And I really wanted to pass that on to the community once that stopped. And we gave it two days after we were pretty sure it stopped. And then we just said, this eruption is over. And that was based on Jim's real detailed culling of all of the eruption commentaries for every single one of the Mauna Loa eruptions out of the Northeast Rift Zone. He wanted to work and make contributions. That was his love of his life, was doing this stuff. And like I said, he was very, very good with the precision of everything that he came up with. Everything was super well documented. Amazing scientist. That he was. That was Hawaii Volcano Observatory's Ken Hahn talking with HBR's Russell Subiono. And they were talking about Jim Kawahikawa, the observatory's first Native Hawaiian scientist in charge who died this past October. He was 72. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, presenting David Hockney, Perspectives Should Be Reversed, prints from the collections of Jordan D. Schnitzer and his family foundation. On view now, honolulumuseum.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, committed to the conservation and protection of water resources for Oahu. Learn more about how to reduce water waste at boardofwatersupply.com. It is called Compassionate Housing. An architect, a neuroscientist, and a firefighter are working to provide a design for rebuilding in Lahaina. The hope is that it will help heal and deal with the trauma of the wildfires and to provide a safe place, a safe space in the event of another fire disaster. It is designing with intention, a prescription, if you will, for a built environment thanks to the Brain Health Applied Research Institute, or BIHARI for short. Architect Mari Kim and co-founder Dr. Kazuma Nakagawa are using their nonprofit to offer an innovative option for permanent housing in Maui. We call it compassionate housing. So you know the way that cause, Dr. Nakagawa says it is, cause says, do you know during COVID, compassionate care became very important because patients who were coming to the hospital were not only coming for medical care, they were actually coming for life support, mental support. They were actually coming to receive care in a compassionate way. And even before everything that happened in Lahaina, Kaz and I talked about compassionate housing. Is there a way to house some of the most vulnerable population in our community? in a way where architects can use that same theory of compassionate care. We can create a housing environment specifically based on the neuroscience of recovery, whether it's from trauma, whether it's from a health situation. And so we started down the road of creating compassionate housing. 
And then the Lahaina fire happened, and we ended up partnering with Bradley Chang, who is a career-long firefighter, and a neurologist, an architect, and a firefighter decided to put our brains together and come up with a different type of housing that allows somebody to enter the very long road to recovery from a very traumatic situation, such as the tragedy of the fire, in an environment that is specifically designed to allow your brain to recover. So we're not just talking about people going into boxes. I'm a Maui girl. I grew up in Kihei. I have a lot of friends and family. We have friends and family who lost their homes. And one of them said it best. She, she actually said, please don't put us in boxes. Allow us to maintain our dignity and don't tell us how to live. So I keep hearing about all these solutions. Let's build concrete houses. Let's make them two-hour fire rated. I think, who wants to live in a concrete box? That's not what we know. It's not in our DNA. So we actually created a specific design based on a plantation house that allows you to shelter in place if you can't run from the fire. By all means, if you can run, please run. <laughs> if you can't run, we have designed a solution that allows you to shelter in place in what we call a safe room, for the lack of a better term. And hopefully the idea is that it will keep you alive for a heck of a lot longer than if that safe room wasn't there. And it's not so much that we believe that you will be in a dangerous situation again. In order for your mental recovery to really begin its journey, one of the main priorities to that rehabilitation is to feel safe. And this is not only in housing, this is in life in general. Without that sense of safety, the path to recovery is very long and very hard. It's long and hard anyway. So in many ways, the safe room is a trigger to first. Know that in that situation, again, you have an alternative. It offers you that sense of safety that forms a foundation first. If you go to sleep every night being scared, I actually was told a story by one of the hotels where the hotel that took in the residents who lost their homes and lost loved ones, most of the residents slept in the car park. They would not sleep in the hotel rooms. And why? Because the hotel rooms faced the ocean and the car park faced the mountain. So if a fire broke out again, they would see it. I mean, that sense of insecurity and sense of the loss of safety is debilitating. So if we can design a different type of housing model where first foundation is a sense of safety that goes a long way into the path of to recovery. You have created this design around the whole plantation yes. village or plantation home? Yes, yes, because it is part of the DNA of who we are. I actually grew up on a nursery. I grew up on a farm, you know, up from the Suda store in Kihei. You know, we have to help people re-engage with the community and the life that they know, understand, and want to return to. We can't just transplant these concrete boxes. And, and I'm not talking about the emergency housing. We're talking about the long-term housing to rebuild on people's own properties. 
you know, you've come up with this design. What's the next step? So we actually talked to a lot of firefighters and I actually watched the interviews with firefighters. And, you know, as an architect, you feel this huge sense of responsibility. So everything failed, right? Electricity fails, you know, everything, you know, fire hoses melted, fire trucks melted, everything. And I remember the captain saying they had no choice and the last resort for a firefighter is to shelter in place. And once I heard him say that, it triggered this thought, okay, could they have sheltered in place in a different way? So we actually designed a house that only relies on gravity to keep a family or a person alive because gravity is the only thing that's not going to fail in this acute fire situation. There is a safe room sitting in the middle of the house. It's in a courtyard. And the top of the room actually is a water tank. And the water, gravity actually drives the water down over the walls of the room to collect in a pond under the room. The room is sitting on feet, so it's not touching the ground. So the water washes under the room as well. And the physics behind it is that that water touching that very hot concrete surface in the fire hopefully will create that, it's like a vapor, it's a bubble of vapor that is what keeps the heat off the room. So we have a lot more to study. We have, Bradley is amazing in his knowledge, he's a career firefighter. He's actually my best friend's older brother as well, somebody I trust deeply. And also, we cannot afford to build these concrete bunker houses. Number one, we, nobody wants to live in them. But they cost so much money. Build a plantation house. In the worst case scenario, the house may burn again, but the family will hopefully stay safe. Spend the money in one specific piece of the house that becomes that safe room. And allow it to work if everything else electronic, you know, mechanically fails around you. You know, gravity's never going to fail. And that was a par- conversation that we had with uh, Maui-born architect Mari Kim. She, along with Dr. Kazuma Nakagawa and her nonprofit, the Brain Health Applied Research Institute, are offering a design for healing as an option for rebuilding Lahaina. <laughs> 